Hi everyone, my name is Connor Devine. I am principal of GDP Partnership, GDP Equity Experts, and you know I'm really excited about today. This is podcast number five uh, of of five podcasts, and over the last four podcasts, you know we've been sharing different uh, information and try to be a little bit educational and introducing you to our company and our our thought processes and how we've been able to help people, and it's been a really enjoyable experience. And the feedback on the podcast to date has been well, it's been excellent. Uh, this one's a little bit different, whereby I have been given uh, total access uh, to Mr. Nick Leeson, the rogue trader, one of the most infamous guys in the world. Um, Nick obviously is well known for his time at Barings Bank. Nick was responsible for creating a, a loss of just over £840 million. Um, I've been very fortunate to get to know Nick quite well. I've met his family and I've been working with him for the last few years. And he's, he's delivered, he told me that he'd be happy to do a podcast. He doesn't do interviews generally, he doesn't do podcasts and, you know, he's just a very private guy, he lives in Galway, um, lovely lad, nice family and I'm just, uh, I'm just delighted that he's, he's taken time on a Sunday morning, you know, to talk to me and then to talk to you and to share some of his experiences with, with, with all of us and hopefully we can learn from some of what you're about to hear over the next 50 minutes. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Nick. Uh, you're really welcome to the GDP Equity Experts uh, podcast. This is our fifth podcast in the last eight weeks. And over the last uh, couple of months, really, I've been trying to um, share some ideas and some of the good work that, that the company's been doing um, in the whole debt advisory platform. So um, really uh, delighted that you've taken some time out. And remember, we're talking to each other here on a Sunday morning. So I really appreciate you coming on to the podcast uh, today. And hopefully over the next few weeks we can get uh, some messages and some takeaway moments from our, our conversation. So thanks for coming on, Nick. No problem. Okay, Nick, so I was just uh, we were just chatting before we started recording, but uh, on Thursday night past I was at the Belfast Telegraph Awards and it was the first time in, in four years that, that I, I was back at the awards. Haven't been the last few years for different reasons, but it reminded me that... Um, it was four years ago nearly to the day that uh, we first met um, where you were the guest speaker at, at the awards. I think, what was that, 2012 maybe? Um, and then I went up and, and we had a conversation. So do you remember that time? Do you remember you know, us meeting and how we met? And Did I make a huge impression on you or what, what was your, your memory from that? Absolutely. The, I, I mean, I, I, I remember the award ceremony quite well. Um, you know, I, I was actually doing one a couple of weeks ago in Plymouth, the Southwest Business Awards. So I haven't done too many award ceremonies over the years. But no, no I definitely remember that. I, I remember meeting yourself and James that evening and then, you know, a couple of conversations on from there. We're, we're doing a bit of work together. So you, you obviously made some form of impression of either you or James. Yeah, but it, it was probably me. Um, so look, you know it's it is interesting on on a, on a serious note. Um, that was an awards dinner that I wasn't particularly excited about going to, and I know uh, the uh, I've read some books and uh, I've I've followed the the career like and reload of Donald Trump and stuff. But sometimes you go to these things and you you don't really want to go to, and you end up meeting people that are really interesting. But what I can say is that um, you know we have went on to work together over the last couple of years, and and from my point of view, it's been it was it was fascinating and, and very interesting getting to work with you and getting to an understanding of your your story and, and your experiences so 
Um, it's a good job that uh, I decided to attend that one, so it's worked out quite well. But just to really, you know, kick on, Nick, in, in terms of your own life, you know, I know that, and most people know you obviously from from Bearings Bank, and you know, we've talked about this a number of times, and and it's just incredibly empowering and inspiring and, and fascinating. Any time I hear you talk about this, and really for the benefit of of our listeners, um, I would love you to give us a really brief overview of of you know how you see what happened 20 odd years ago um if you don't mind i'll jump in and out just to have a, have a conversation of of your experiences of what happened 20 odd years ago with bearings sure well i mean the, the, the collapse of the bank was um was 21 years ago now so you know slightly longer than that maybe 20 uh, I, I left school at the age of 18 went went to work for Coopson company then morgan's family and then was headhunted to bearings and Worked for a little bit of time in the in, in the office there in, in London, um, and then found my way out to Asia. Um, you know, I, w- I wasn't really too enthused with the job that I was doing in London. It wasn't really stretching me too much, and um, you know, for me, it was always about trying to, to to get involved with a new challenge. And Asia was one one way that I could do that. So I worked in Hong Kong, Indonesia. Uh, and then latterly in Singapore, where things started to go wrong, and I was 25 when I when I moved to Singapore to run the futures and options operation. Um, hadn't really at that stage, I hadn't really encountered anything that I couldn't cope with. And you know, at 25, you you kind of think that you can take on the world, and there's lots of sort of things that happen that that maybe sort of support that that conclusion or that or that idea that you are able to to cope with most things and um you know i was certainly in that sort of position had a very exalted opinion of what success looked like and where i was going to get to and 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 that was very much to to the top and i didn't do some very simple things when i found myself in a difficult situation i didn't ask for help and advice tried to deal with it myself and and i think what that you know the, the situation that i found myself in was that i wasn't dealing with the situation as it was at the time uh, and, and that only makes the situation get worse. You know, you could be very lucky and, and turn it around very quickly, yeah. or you just get deeper and deeper in, in, into the problem. And not dealing with it, freezing, um, means that you, you know it's getting worse, and you, you, you're just becoming more complicit uh, in, in the situation that's unfolding. So, it was an illegal trading position, and over the course of three years, you know, there were. Uh, there were good days and bad days, but ultimately it, it resulted in eight hundred and sixty-two million pounds worth of losses and the collapse of a two hundred and thirty-three-year-old merchant bank. But you know, you, you have to come back from that. You, you, I suppose you have a choice in, in life: you either you either face your problems and move forward, or, or you run away from them. So, you know, I suppose I was running away from them up until till till that point because I wasn't deal, dealing with the situation that I was in, but. You know, moving forward, sometimes people say to me, well, why didn't you change your name or did you escape to the west coast of Ireland because you don't want to be seen? You know, I, yeah. I don't think the west coast of Ireland is is a leper's colony. It, it certainly isn't. Uh, and that wasn't the motivation. It was, you know, like I met somebody and we, she was living in, in, in Galway and so it was easier for me to move. But I've always faced and, and regularly faced uh, audiences uh, about my time at the bank and, and things that happened, and and that's the way that I choose to deal with it. There's no point running away. I think if you if you do learn to deal with a, a, a difficult situation, it, it both empowers and it enables you to 
to, to, to arrive at a baseline where you can move forward. You know, you've come to terms with what happened, you've accepted what happened, and the acceptance and responsibility are key within that. Mm. And if you don't get to that baseline, it's impossible to recover and move forward. So, you know, I suppose that, and it's, you know, for me, if I'm always, and I always, I'm not asked to do this, but I always like to put it into my own words, you know, what that period of my life actually genuinely means. And, you know, there's no way from getting away from the fact that it will always be the most embarrassing period because, yeah. you know, it's the complete opposite of, of what I wanted to, to, to achieve and to happen during that period. Yeah, okay. Well, look, you know, you, you mentioned some, some uh, you described some situations there, which I wouldn't mind just drilling into a little bit, but you talked at the beginning where, you know, you didn't ask for help and you didn't take advice. What what do you mean by that? Like whenever you were in this illegal trading position and, and things were getting out of control, I mean, were you surrounded by a big team? Was it a small team? I mean, it was a, it was a huge bank, the Queen's Bank, I think. It was trading for 230-odd years. You, you were maybe, like whenever you were at, say, 500 million the wrong way, you know, what, what was going through your mind at that time? What What help could you have gotten or... You know, if you could turn the clock back, was there six months, eighteen months into that process that you know there was different things you could have did, but you didn't do for whatever reason? Can can you just let us into your mind for a second on that front? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, you can put your hand up every day and tell people what's going on, but for, for, for me, putting my hand up and, and and admitting to what was happening, you know, for me personally, was an admittance of my own failure, mm -hmm. which was which was tough. You know, it was impossible for me to do at that time. I didn't have the, I, I, I don't know if it's a maturity thing or, or if I, I didn't have the makeup to be able to do that because it was all, you know, banking was always at that time was very much, and, and still to, to this day, was very much about success. And, you, you know, everybody was great at uh, celebrating success, but, you know, failure was something that people just didn't talk about. And, you know, you look at most of the big entrepreneurs or the very successful entrepreneurs who, who exist around the world, they've all experienced failure at some time. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's lots of stories that I can give you about people who, who did fail during that period and have gone on and, and worked for bearings and have gone on to, you know, absolutely massive success. And they're people that are written about and uh, people that are quoted in the media on, on a fairly regular basis. So... You know, I, I had a fairly small team with me in Singapore. The the, to, the total sort of employee base in the whole office would have been about 200, of, of which about 20 reported to me. But there were people that I knew well in Tokyo that I could have spoken to. There were people that I knew well in the UK that I could have spoken to. So there were, you know, I, I think, you know, and, and this is with hindsight, whatever you face in your life, you know, there are always people that can give you help and advice. And sometimes they're right next to you. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're in the same room or the same building. Or, or, and sometimes you have to look a little bit further for them if, you know, if it's something that, you know, that you, you, your direct acquaintances don't necessarily have experience of. But, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of people that if asked could, could, could have given me help and advice and, 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 steered me in the right direction rather than the one that I decided to take, which was, you know, rely on myself and my own ability and try to cope with this and correct it, mm -hmm. uh, which ultimately I failed to do. And, you know, when you're in that sort of situation, I think you, you know, you look for the smallest false positives. And, yeah. 
um, you know, and, and you put a lot of store behind them. And, and I can think of episodes where I managed to get a lot of losses back, and um, you know that that gave me confidence that I was able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the situation sort of started again, you know, you've got this false confidence that you're able to cope with and correct the situation. And ultimately, on the second occasion, um, I wasn't able to, um, to, to 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 get back from that position. Um, but yeah, look, I, I mean, I, throughout all of my experiences, prison and everything else that happened after the collapse of the bank, I, I do genuinely believe that everybody has this innate ability to cope with everything that's going to confront them in life. And, you know, sometimes it's difficult to find them. I know, Connie, you've had your, your own health issues over the years that you've had to deal with. And, you know, the strength comes from within. And I, I genuinely believe that we all have it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't you can't immediately put your finger on where it is. You have to find it, but it's there somewhere. And I I, I also believe that you're you're only given problems that you have the ability to face. Yeah. But you know, a lot of people can't do that. They keep their head in the sand. Mm-hmm. They don't deal with it, which is you know, I, 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 certainly I was doing during my time at Bearings during those years. Um, and you know the situation only gets worse, and there comes a fine line, I suppose, whereby you, you're once you go too far into the situation and you you don't deal with it for too long, you know sometimes you you kind of fall over the abyss at that sort of stage, and there is no comeback. And you know lots of different things happen, um, and, and people react in different ways. But at that stage, typically it, it's gone too far. So yeah. you know it's all about. As you know, it's, it's all about communication, being informed, um, making sure that you engage with what's good, the situation that you find yourself in. And, and, and the power of communication, I think, is, is, a, is a tool or a power um, that, that can never be stressed enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, one of the things that, uh, you know, we, we have done some work together and we've been trying to encourage people and we still encourage people that no matter what, and how difficult uh, circumstances that you find that you're in your life, be it uh, you know financial or relationship, a business failure or or whatever, that it's really important to to ask for help and and seek out advice and 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 really try and you know turn whatever negatives in your life into some form of positive. But in terms of your own story, I mean, it was one of the one of the things that you know whenever I heard you were speaking that night in the Telegraph, I was I was genuinely excited about about listening to your story because I'd done some homework and. And, you know, I'm sort of attracted to people, you know, obviously you mentioned my own health challenges with the MS and stuff. And I've been very fortunate to, to turn that around into, into what is now a positive experience. But I, I'm kind of attracted to people who who seem to, no matter what form or how strong the adversity is in their own life, that they've been able to, you know, turn that around and then go about sharing a very positive, positive story from their own experiences. And in terms of your story... It never, uh, it never stops uh, reminding me of how, just and I know we're quite friendly, but uh, genuinely how inspiring it is. And I know you know you did spend some time in, in prison, wasn't it in Germany? I was in both places. I was in Germany and in and in Singapore. Um, Rem- remind me again. Yeah, combined uh, four and a half years. Yeah. So you spent. I mean, you, you know, you know, and I I talk to people all the time and. I, I, I would ask people to have a look at your stuff and your book and, and, and try and get an understanding of what adversity actually is 
Um, and no matter whether, whether it was right or wrong or what happened, you've already said it's, uh, numerous times that it was the most embarrassing part of your life. Um, but mm. then to go on and, and deal with what you've dealt with um, since that has just been incredible to come back now and, and, and do what you're doing, which I just, I just think is, sends a really, really good message. But, you know, could, could you let me into your mind a little bit, the four years that you were, you were in prison? I mean, what, what, what were you thinking? How, how did you, you know, get your mind into such a space that you were going to say, well, look, you know, I need to do something about this. I, you know, how, what was going through your mind whenever you were in prison at that time? Well, I, I mean, you, you always have to have focus, and, and you yourself understand the the importance. Certainly, you know, from any sort of situation when you're when you're dealing with an illness. So, and, you, and your focus certainly for me, my focus continued to change throughout the period. And you know, you can get yourself into these. You know, I liken things to being very either black and white, and, yeah. you know, or, or, or grey. And, and the hardest periods. I believe, or, or me personally, that I find most difficult to cope with are the grey areas where you don't really know what's going on. You're not getting enough information, and so you, your mind starts to play tricks with you. And certainly when you're in prison and you're doing that, you get yourself into this downward spiral that's going to end up with manic depression yeah. unless you do something about it. So you have to learn. You have to learn to arrest that behaviour and. For me, the only way through doing that is to get some certainty in, in, into your life. You know, get back into a black or a white type of area where you, where you might not like what's going on, but at least you know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and then trying to work out what you can focus on from that point forward. So, you know, in the early days when I was in prison in Germany, you, you know, there was obviously an awful lot of stuff going on, and I, I had a lot of communication. I had a weekly sort of meeting with my lawyer at that time about. Um, what was going to happen, what the process was, what, if if there was any defence, which we knew that there wasn't, what sort of delaying tactics could we go through to get ourselves into a better situation. But there was this constant communication, you know, so you, you were kept regularly informed. And, okay. and, and that was good. The, the, the grey area was, all right, I know I'm going to jail, and my lawyer always said that I was his best ever client because I, I didn't think I was innocent, and I knew... I was going to have to spend some time in jail. I just wanted to clarify how long it was going to be. So the grey period, if you like, was for the first six months. Yeah. There was a lot of speculation in the English media about how long my sentence would be, and um, you know, ranging from I think it, I think the lowest was probably 18 months up to 84 years. So a fairly big uh, spread in terms of what what I'm might be facing and the important thing for me was to try and get some clarity around what that number was going to be and we couldn't do that until we started to negotiate with the Singaporeans which was um, which was six months into the the time that I spent in Germany yeah. and then very quickly it became aware that they were looking for a maximum sentence of eight years which meant five years and four months in prison and whilst that is an inordinate amount of time and yeah. you know I, I started to get my mind around the fact that I was going to have to spend that amount of time in prison and you you know throughout that period you're sort of focusing on what's going on family and and, and so forth and then that unfortunately changed when I went back to Singapore you know I didn't hear from my my wife at the time and I was back in a very very grey area and then yeah. you know you, you have to focus on other things that are happening so you, you learn some now it's, it's an extreme situation yeah. when you're in prison but you know you, you, you learn other coping strategies so yeah. 
you know, like when, when I worked, first went back to Singapore, I can't remember the exact number, but I think I worked out that I had about 1,500 or 1,450 days to spend in prison. You're locked up for 23 hours a day, the, the walls are white, there's nothing in the cells, and there is not a lot to occupy your mind. And it, it, it's very, very tough, but yeah. you try to think of things and uh, in, in smaller periods, you focus. I didn't have too many visits, but my visits maybe were three months apart, so you focus on those to make the period shorter. And you do silly little things, like I could send um, one or two airmail a month, and I'd send them to one person, and send them on to another 20 people, and send them on to another mm. group of 10 people. So I, I regularly, throughout the period that I was in Singapore, which was fairly close to four years, would get 15 or 16 letters a week, every week. And you know, you, you just reframe the way that you think about it. So on a Monday, you know you've got a good chance of getting letters. Yeah. But if they don't get there, then on a Tuesday, you've got, you know, on a Monday, you've got a one in five chance. On a Tuesday, you've got a one in four chance. So that's positive because it's, you know, it's a better it's a better chance than it was on the Monday. And just silly little things like that where yeah, yeah. you, you, you reframe re, re or rethink the way that, um, that, that you think about things, but and, you're, and you're, you're really, but you're really, what what you're really doing there is you've you've had to reprogram your brain because you're in a different environment and different circumstances, and and it's really where you're rewiring your thoughts. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's you know, and you have to adapt to the situation. I mean, I, look, I I, I was at uh, I was at doing a bit of consultancy in in South Africa at the back end end of last year, and I was. Mm sat down with the board of a, of a fairly large bank and, you know, after we had lots of different discussions about lots of different things, you know, the, the question came around to, you know, what would you, what would you, um, what would you put down as your, your, your best attribute? And, um, you know, I suppose through all of those years working in coots and then uh, ultimately in, in bearings and then on into the other institutions and, uh, and spending time in prison as well, I was always very socially adept. So I could move in circles with the, the most blue-blooded organisation at the same time survive in prison by being aware of what the situation was, being cognizant of what was happening, and yeah. being able to survive within it. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure I've told you before that... You know, everybody thought that I was this uber criminal that had managed to get away with £862 million. And yeah. there was no point, um, you know, that, that was serving me well in prison because I was elevated to a level yeah. that somebody normally wouldn't be. And there was no yeah. point contradicting that because um, at the time it was something that was keeping me safe. We'll, we'll not get into it, but I remember you telling me and when we were in Dublin about the time you were taken out of prison and brought up this big office and there was everybody there and, and this guy was quite uh, ferocious in his uh, interrogation, but ultimately they were looking to understand where was the money, more or less. Yeah. That, that's fair enough. It was, a, it was a, yeah. maybe, 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 maybe for again, but just, just very quickly on that, you know, prison in itself... Um, it, it, I can't take my mind there. To, I don't understand how difficult it would be, but I'm sure it's incredibly difficult. But he also had cancer at that time. Was that whenever you were in Thailand or whenever you were in Germany in prison? Or when did that happen? No, when I was, when I was in Singapore, and it was um, I, I had a year of the sentence still left to go, and I spent some time in the punishment cells for refusing to do something. And um, when I came out there, I'd lost a lot of weight and uh, was starting to experience some stomach discomfort. So. Mm -hmm. 
again, you know, like it, and I found myself in a situation where they were prescribing something that um, wasn't really assisting at that time. Um, and they were giving me iron tablets and it was only making the discomfort worse. Mm-hmm. But again, you, you know, you try and look at the situation and appraise what's going on. And it became apparent to me that, you know, whilst they were giving me these iron tablets, they were, or the doctor and the, and, and the prison were deeming that they were, um, that they were actually treating me, even though it wasn't helping. Mm-hmm. And they, so, you know, what I had to do then was one day when they were giving me the tablets, I refused to accept them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that kind of put the problem back into their, uh, in, in, into their um, ownership, if you like, because I was refu- refusing the medication, therefore they weren't treating me. So they sent me to an external hospital and, okay. um, you know, somebody felt my stomach and, you know, I was warded immediately because obviously they realised something was wrong. Okay, yeah. Okay, well, um, <clears throat> pushing on then, Nick. Um, you've you've been out. Obviously, you've you moved. Uh, the, you moved to Ireland. You you remarried, and you've got your own family. And and over the last sort of, what what have you been up to then over the last ten to fifteen years? If you don't mind, just sharing very quickly with the listeners what, well, what I, you're at. Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I, I do. Um, I've done a few different things. I, I, I ran a football club for, for a period of time here in Galway, um, worked with yourself and James with, with GDP. Um, I, throughout that period, I've always done a lot of after-dinner uh, speaking. That, that sort of continues to this day. I, you know, I suppose I never, I, I never really uh, knew what the longevity of it was going to be, but I suppose over the years I've become a proficient and hopefully entertaining um, speaker, so you know, I was speaking in London this weekend or last week for mm-hmm. for a large American company. I've um, and you know, I've regularly sort of employed on that um, on on that sector. So that that has always been my main source of income since I since I left Singapore in 1999. Um, I, I do do a bit of risk consultancy with a. A close friend of mine who's um, yeah. who's South African and uh, is an operational risk specialist. But yeah. I'm also looking at an online education program at the moment. So that's kind of what, what what's been going on. Super. Okay. And in terms of lessons learned, I mean, I remember we 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 discussed this as well. But at one time you were the top of the list in terms of. Uh, um, rogue traders as it were but now I don't know I don't yeah. know what number you're at at the minute what are you 15th or 16th or something or? Something, something like that and, yeah. I mean, I'm back in training now. yeah uh, yeah well we'll, we'll we'll keep going hopefully that works well for you a bit better for you but in, in terms of uh, I mean lessons learned the financial industry banking and you know we've got the LIBOR scandal and we've got our own I mean Ireland we've had scandal after scandal and banks and NAMA and all sorts of stuff I mean what's your very quick view and I know I know what they are but what, like what, how do you see this are we learning any lessons from from anything of the past at all as an industry well the the the, the answer is um, that, that, that lessons are learned and then very quickly forgot and people revert to type um, very very quickly it's an industry that's that's very very strange I mean let's not forget you've got retail banking and you've got yeah. investment banking and my my experience is more from the from the investment side of it but you, you know it's very um it's very profit and success generated and you know the, whenever you look at any of these markets there's there's always a competitive edge that people are trying to gain and um you know once they gain that competitive edge, competitive edge, competitive edge they that they 
flog it to death so that they can make as much money as they possibly can. Yeah. So in retail banking, the way that that sort of manifested itself is that credit was very cheap and, um, you know, they allowed people to, 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 to leverage um, to a level that's never really been seen in the past and, yeah. and combined with a credit squeeze, squeeze that, was, uh, that, that was emanating out of you know, principally the US at the, in the first stages, that became um, intolerable. And, um, you know, that's resulted in a lot of people being in a situation that they would never have envisaged themselves being in, driven by the banks, developers and the governments that thought it was all good uh, and really didn't have an understanding of what's going on. Um, now, I think that's, you know, from that point forward, there's obviously been a lot of change and, uh, and people are trying to work out ways that they can correct that situation going forward. But the legacy is a very, very difficult um, difficult situation to deal with. And it, yeah. it's one that can become, you know, both overpowering for the individual and for both the banks and the governments because of the, the extent of it and the effect that that's having on the local economy that exists in in certain places. So, yeah. you know, when you look at investment banking, the fines are just astronomical these days. I mean, JP Morgan are, are well able to pay, you know, tens of billions of fines a year. Yeah. Um, you know, the message that that sends out is that they're obviously making a lot more money than they're paying in fines, and yeah. they're not too worried about the fines. So you look at conduct of banks and people who work within banks, there's not really been a measure that's worked over the last 21 years. I mean, Berings was described as a wake-up call that people would never forget. Yeah. Um, they clearly did, because yeah. I'm down to 15th. Yeah. Um, and the losses got bigger for a period of time. You don't see so many road trading episodes now. So, you know, from an investment banking perspective, the controls have got better. Yeah. Um, but you then look at some of the other things that are going on um, in, in banking as well. You know, the, you mentioned LIBOR and those sort of things. And that's a conduct issue, you know. If you think you're better than everybody else is in, in place to control you, mm -hmm. um, then you're going to step over the line from time to time. And that's what, um, you know, and, uh, and that's what happens. Now, do, do I, I'm not anti-bank or anything. I don't, um, I, 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 you know, I used to love my time in the industry and I still think it's a fascinating industry. But, you, you know, to enable um, effective change, you almost kind of need to shut everywhere down today and open them up again tomorrow with a load of different people in them. And probably, uh, probably, otherwise. probably even on that one, I, I think, you know, greed, power and money and control, I think if there's ever going to be a time where you can take humans off the pitch in that industry and it's all robotic because, you know, mm. everybody's human and, 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 you know, it's, it's, I just don't, I can't see, you know, it was you really who opened my eyes to this because you just kept telling me that this, this is going to keep repeating itself and history keeps repeating itself and, when when people are in control and humans are in control and and all those other levers, then I just I just think it is going to keep repeating itself. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I mean, I'm realistic. You know, I'm a realist at heart, and, and unless you do sort of you know close the doors one day and open them up with a with a completely new group of people who who understand the accountability and responsibility that's on their shoulders and it's, yeah. you know, it's strictly and regularly enforced. And they're trying to do it in the UK at the moment with this senior managers regime, which, you know, does give line responsibility 
to specific people within the within the major banks. But the major banks, all the banks are great about putting processes and yeah. smoke screens in in, yeah. in place to to make sure that it really doesn't work. So I have I have grave doubts about it working. But the problem is the, the real problem is is that. You know, whatever walk of life you're in, you, you you're very much influenced by what you see and what you hear. Yeah. And the problem with the world of banking is that you know the people who are already there have been getting away with it for a long time, and they, yeah. they you know, that and it's not everybody. And I I'd hate to think anybody thinks it is, but you know, there, there are a group of people who still believe that they're masters of the universe and that they, yeah. you know, that there is nobody that can control them. There's an awful lot more people who, who are very normal within banking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, you, you know, uh, and I think it's been an industry that for years has been behind, you know, been kept behind walls and, and people haven't really understood it, haven't really asked any difficult questions. And that's why we are where we are, you know, yeah. um, because the more questions, the more challenging that's done, mm-hmm. um, you know, the less you can get away with, to be honest. But yeah. I think that it's already broken, um, it's impossible to fix, and it will be like this, certainly for, for, for my lifetime, I would imagine. Okay, and, and just sort of getting close to finishing up here, but take, taking it back to really, you know, uh, the sort of... Uh, equity experts, the debt advisory, you know, people that, that we meet on a day-to-day basis over the last five years. I mean, I would have thought that our own debt advisory business would have been coming to a close now, Nick, after you know seven odd years of 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 the the banks trying to trying to rehabilitate themselves. But the first three months of this year, we actually have have doubled in, in terms of the people who have come through the the front door looking for help. And it, it seems to me in this time of austerity, which is going to run to twenty twenty anyway, in, in terms of the UK government, that there's just an awful lot of people out there that are in serious financial distress. I mean, you've talked about this before. And in, in, in terms of Ireland, there's still a, a huge debtors' prison down there. The insolvency laws have finally caught up with the UK in terms of the twelve month bankruptcy, but. You know, even even Nick, this week alone, there's a couple of people who've come through to us from Bank of Ireland, and and it would appear that 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 bank hasn't dealt with their provisions, and um, the way we had maybe thought. But uh, it 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 appears to me that there's huge challenges out there still, um, in terms of debt, and I'm I I think I know what your answer is going to be. Well, what would you say to people who's financially struggling at the minute, who thinks that there's nowhere to turn and you know, obviously, what would your view be on that? What would you encourage them to do? Well, I mean, there's always, uh, as I said at the beginning, I suppose, and, you know, without the context of the last question, it's, um, you know, there's always somewhere to turn, you know, and you need to get the best possible advice. And it, and it is all about communicating and, and, and keeping yourself, um, you know, keeping yourself in the loop and, and, and making sure that you engage with, with, with people. Now, you know, sometimes that's easier to do if you have a third party doing it for you. And I think that's why GDP uh, equity experts does such a great job. You know, they know what they're doing. They know how to deal with the bank. So they take some of that burden away or pretty much all of the burden away from the person who finds themselves in financial difficulty. I think the problem at the moment is, you know, there is really no new lending that exists yeah. uh, in in the country, either north or south. And yeah. so people people are in this sort of permanent state of flux where, 
yeah. you know, that they, they, they've got a limited amount of income uh, and they've got a debt that is, is growing exponentially because there's an interest rate still being applied. So, you know, the first sort of thing is you need to stop that and you need some experts to in, in place to do that for you. Um, but then to, to start to deal with it and, and you know, they, what, what do they say? You can't take, it's probably not appropriate for this conversation, but you can't take trousers off a bare arse and, and eventually, you know, the banks, the, the banks do realise that. And as you know, with some of the success you've had over the years, Connor, um, you know, they do eventually come around to yeah. to that equation. But the banks are very, you know, the, the approach from the banks is nobody is, um, you know, has the, nobody within the banks, I and mean, this isn't a, a, a personal uh, yeah. um, thing that they have themselves. It's just the way the banks work. Yeah, you know? policy, everybody, yeah. Everybody's looking to pass the buck. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and nobody nobody wants to take that authority or responsibility for doing a write down when it is very justified and needed uh, in order to move forward. I mean, I, I do think, like you say, it should have really been coming to an end at this stage. But you know, I think what you what you're going to see, and I, I, you know, from a couple of conversations I've had with people in the in the UK, there's a lot more people still going through that insolvency process. And, yeah. You know, like ideally, people can avoid it and they can come to a sensible arrangement with banks, but they they will need help and they will need to ask for help yeah. and advice. Yeah, no, I I would agree with you. I, I we all thought that the that the collapse of the property market, the the legacy debt problem, would have would have cleared up by now, and unfortunately, it a lot of it has, and and it's trying to get going, but there is a lack of liquidity. There's a lack of of lending going on, and then there's this whole new challenge which we'll not talk about now. Um, the fact that the American vulture funds have come in and bought up a lot of loans and that's going to take a long time to work itself out in, on this island anyway but um, we just we just don't have, a, have enough yeah, time. Yeah, I, I mean, but the thing, the thing is that the people who, have, who buy up loans have a lot of time. Yeah. And they don't mind waiting. So, you know, that's why people need to sort of act now and, and get a solution now. You know, like they, they, they owe it to themselves kind of first and foremost so that they can move forward yeah you know you don't want to be in this uh this permanent sense of purgatory for the rest of your life so you you need to draw a line and say look however bad it is you know maybe i'm going to take a little bit of punishment over the next short period but i need to do that because i owe it to myself and my family to move forward and the only way that i'm going to be able to do that is is by drawing a line under this. Yeah, I think, I think it's just so many people that we meet and, and we're talking to all the time and it's as if they're in some form of financial purgatory because obviously you need you need new money and you, and, and you need capital to, to either buy your loan out or, or, or do a deal with the bank. And it's just it's just in Ireland at the moment there's just a lack of capital and a lack of credit available, which is really, there's a real handbrake on, on, on allowing people to spring forward and, and be proactive and progressive. But... Um, Hopefully, with with time, you know there is a little bit more capital coming into the country now, and as you know, we're working on different things at the minute. So, um, but it is a, it's still a, a huge, huge challenge. Can I can I can I flick the switch before we wrap up very briefly? Um, this Brexit uh, situation, Nick, is is big chat. I know you're in Galway, but you know you're probably you're in the UK a lot, and it's 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 an important issue, and it's something that's on our TV screens a lot now in the evening times. You know, David Cameron's obviously encouraging everybody to to vote to stay in the EU and then you've got Boris who who was voting or encouraging people to stay in the EU six months ago but he's changed his mind now 
and he's he's asking people to to vote to leave the EU. I'm just wondering, do you have a view on that? Is it something that you're you know interested in? I mean, I was at a a a, a, a dinner in the Europa last week. Davy Stockbrokers and Michael O'Leary was the keynote speaker, and and it was just fascinating. And obviously, he he's very keen for people to stay in the EU, but. One of the things that Davies mentioned was that they felt that if 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 the UK votes to leave, votes to leave the EU, that they thought that sterling would fall at least ten to fifteen percent. I mean, have you a view on this whole thing, or you know, what way do you think it will flow? Um, I, I I don't have a huge view, Connor. To be honest with you, I think you're watching the wrong TV programs, by the way, as well. <laughs> but um, there must be something lighter on the TV program <laughs> on the TV that you can watch. But um, no, look, I living living in Galway, I suppose, uh, the way that I live yes. my life, I suppose, is there's a there's a macroeconomic and political uh, landscape that I don't get too heavily involved in. You know what what people do around my local area has has much more interest. I do think they'll vote to to, to stay in. Um, right. Okay. I, I, I mean, I just think they that they will do. I mean, otherwise there's going to be lots of problems with Scotland and Wales and yeah. um, and, and other things immediately from, from that point forward. And it doesn't, to me, it doesn't strike me as a great um, a, a, a great move from a trade perspective. Uh, and I think you know, often you you know you're you're as strong as the group of people that are around you, and sort of alienating yourself to that sort of degree, I don't think is. Is something that people will do in the modern world. You know, maybe years ago when we were talking about Arthur Starville and a few of those miners walking down the road and, uh, and you know campaigning for whatever they were campaigning for at the time, there was a bit more political intent. I don't think that exists anymore, and uh, I think they vote, will vote to stay in currency in dailies. I, I wouldn't believe what a stockbroker tells me anyway. So <laughs> right. you know the, the current. The currency may move, but you can find one stockbroker who will tell you that yeah. the currency will go down 15%. You'll find another two who will tell you it will go up five. Yeah. Who knows? You know, it's just the weight of money that will move that as usual. I think the one thing you probably would agree with me that it does, any, whenever stuff like that happens across the world, it brings uncertainty and it, it gets the markets nervous and the stock market and all sorts of stuff. Isn't that, is that a fair comment from someone who's not really an expert in that? Yeah, yeah, it is, but you but you normally find that uh, most stuff is already written into the marketplace. So, you know, like sterling has fallen a good bit um, since the beginning of the year. I don't know in percentage terms. I think it was trading at about one forty, down to one twenty six. Right, so okay. that's ten percent already. Yeah. So I would say, you know, like if I was, you know, if I was back in my trading days and thinking about what I was going to do, you know, post a vote. I would probably make myself long sterling because I reckon there's already 10% being written into it since the beginning of the year. Right, okay. Now, have I been right in the past? Not too often. So that's not a piece of sound financial advice that I'd like you yeah. to, uh, to to spread around. But, but typically, you do find that when there's when there's something happening or... or um, is, is lined up to happen, such as the referendum in June, uh, yeah. it's very quickly written into the market. So I would suggest it's already written in. Yeah, okay. All right, no, well, it's, 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 it's certainly top. You've been sheltered from that whole discussion, th uh, probably, thankfully, says you. Um, but no. Yeah, well, look, I muck up, I, I muck out the horse on a daily basis rather than yeah. think about Brexit.
Yeah, no, I, I, I actually don't believe that. I think you've got um, someone that does that for you. Um, but oh, 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 okay, well, look, Nick, that's been that's been fascinating. Look, your your story is 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 incredible. I would, would encourage people to you know have I've read the book, I've watched the film, I've I've worked with you, I've I know you're walking the talk. I know you're very modest and and, and quiet about what has went on, but I do believe that there's some outstanding, incredible messages um, to come out of what you've been through in your own life. And being genuine, it, it has helped me a lot as well. It's been great to continue to work with you and, and learn from some of the things that you've been sharing with me. So, look, thanks very much for coming on our podcast. Um, this will definitely be of interest to uh, to people who have been listening to date, and I'm sure that we will catch up again very, very soon, my man. No problem, at all, Connor. Thanks a lot. All right, champ. Thank you. See you. Okay, everybody, that was... Uh, a pretty special moment for me personally. I've been working with Nick for, for four years. Um, I've got to know him personally. He's a really, really good lad. Um, his story is incredible. Uh, there's some fantastic uh, experiences that he's been able to share. I would encourage people, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in that podcast. I would encourage people to, you know, have a look at, at Nick's story and then look at how he has dealt with adversity and how he has dealt with challenges in his own life. And then, you know, if you're like me and like others who know him, um, you might be able to uh, take away um, some of the uh, the methods that he has been able to uh, bring into his mind and his life to deal with those challenges. So it's it's incredibly empowering. I would have a look at his book as well. Um, it's out there. It's 21 years gone and, and it's a long tale. It, it never gets boring. Um, so I'm really hoping that, that you find that interesting. Um, it was a great uh, podcast for me to be interviewing him um, and also even a bit more special because Nick doesn't really do podcast interviews he doesn't really do that many interviews to be honest so um, it's always good to uh, to, to uh, speak to him and, and for him to share it with everybody has, has just been pretty special so look that's podcast number five remember um, this is all about you I want you to engage with us I want you to contact us I want you to call us I want you to tweet us I want you to email us uh, we're here to help people. We're here to uh, educate people. Um, education is nothing without understanding. That's something that I've been using for years, and that's actually a quote from Nick himself. So www.tdpequityexperts.co.uk. You can get me on Twitter, Connor underscore Divine, and we're all over Facebook, and uh, feel free to get in touch. So hope you enjoyed it, and have a great day.